Truman Burbank is becoming more and more dissatisfied with his life because he's living a lie. The irony is he doesn't know he's living a lie. He's the center of the lie. He's living the lie, but he's the one being lied to. He thinks he's living a normal, day-in, day-out, routine, everyday, monotonous, friendly life, when in reality, everything he does is being watched by millions of viewers on TV. This is the story of a 1998 movie called Truman Show. Have any of you ever heard of this movie or seen it? I, uh, I've actually been looking for that, the DVD of this, and the, the library doesn't have it, and I haven't found a copy in the thrift stores. It seems to be one that, uh, that people hold on to. Anyway, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, I'm going to tell a little bit about it, so I won't be offended if you put your hands over your ears for the next few seconds here. Truman has grown up in a fake environment where everyone around him is in on the deception except for him. His wife, his best friends, the people he works with, everybody, everybody are actors. Everybody is acting except for him. He's the one who's living a genuine life, but the world he's in, everybody in the world, is a giant TV set. In fact, the whole dome that, he's, that, that encompasses his life is this giant TV set with cameras hidden all over to watch his every move. Well, on his 30th birthday, he begins to notice some things that seem a little bit off. He begins to question the reality that's around him. And so he begins to wander off script, which forces the producer to try to scramble and put actors in different places to kind of push him back into his normal retreat routine. But Truman's curiosity has been piqued, and he's determined to pursue a question that has been nagging in his mind. Is everybody in on some kind of plot against me? At the end of the movie, Truman is confronted with reality. He's discovered his whole life has been staged. He's discovered that this is all part of the TV set. And now he has a choice. He can stay in the artificial world that's been created for him, where he is used to, it's safe for him, he knows what's going to happen, or he can step into the real world. He can enter a world that is unknown, but no longer make believe, no longer fake. He can get in line with reality, or he can keep it safe. In today's passage, we come to the end of Mark. And the question Mark leaves us with is, are you going to get into line with the reality that Jesus presents? The reality of a different kind of kingdom than what you're used to. The kingdom of God is so much different than what we're used to in the kingdoms of the world. Are you going to get in line or are you going to reject that and live life as usual? Throughout the book, Mark has been challenging us, the readers, with the question, who do you say Jesus is? Because Mark is convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God the Son who entered into human history as a human, presented the reality of the kingdom of God, died as a ransom, a payment for our bad choices, our sin, our guilt, our shame, our brokenness, and then he rose again in victory 
So Jesus presents true reality, eternal reality, the reality that he created and that he made us for and that he's redeeming. And it's a completely different reality than what we're used to. It's a reality that offers purpose. It offers hope. It offers meaning. It offers hope, love, joy. It offers real life. So if you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15, verse 40, we're going to read verse 40 in chapter 15 through the uh, chapter 16, verse 8. And Jesus has, has just died in the passage just before we talked about last week. The temple curtain was torn in two, and the Roman centurion has proclaimed, surely this man was the Son of God. So Mark 15, verse 40, and we'll read till 16:8. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for, for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, Jesus Uh, Just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be afraid, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. In this text, Mark presents us with a challenge. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? Because in Mark's presentation of the resurrection of Jesus, we're given three things. We're given confidence, restoration, and courage. Confidence, restoration, and courage. We're given confidence because Mark gives us details about the resurrection that confirm its accuracy, its truthfulness, and its dependability. Three times in this passage, the personal names of women are mentioned. In verse 40, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome are watching the death of Jesus on the cross. They see that he's dead. In verse 47, the same two Marys observe the burial of Jesus. They see where he's laid, and they see the big stone rolled in front. In chapter 16, 1 through 8, after the Sabbath is over, the same Marys and Salome buy spices, and they go back to the place where they saw he was laid. Jesus had been buried in a hurry, 
because it, he was crucified on preparation day, the day before the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is the day we rest. And it begins on Friday evening and then it ends on Saturday evening. And so, normally a body would have been taken down and washed and anointed with oil and spices and wrapped in a cloth and then some of those spices were placed in the wrappings. And this wasn't done to stop the body but from decaying, but it was done to perfume the body that counteracted the aroma of death and decay. It was also done as an act of love and of devotion. Well, they didn't have time to do all that on Friday night. So the women, as soon as the Sabbath was over, they went and bought their spices so that in the morning they could go early and have the daylight to, to do all the anointing of Jesus. So they... they got up early and they go to the tomb and they're such a hurry to get there to care for his needs, to, to, to show their love and devotion, they didn't even think about the huge stone that had been rolled in front until they were on their way. Now this stone would take many people to push away because it weighed from 1,500 to 3,000 pounds. A huge, massive stone. So they're, they're, like, they're on their way to do this and all of a sudden they're, oh, how are we gonna get in there? But then when they get there, the stone is rolled away. And the only person there is a young man dressed in a white robe. Now, the, the Greek word for white is brilliant. Mark doesn't use the word for angel, but every indication is that this is an angel who's, who's in the, where Jesus' body would have been. Now, here's the thing. The women aren't expecting the tomb to be open. They're expecting to see a body. They're not expecting to see an angel. And this is fascinating if we stop and think about it. Because in chapter 15, verse 41 that we just read, it says that the women had followed Jesus and cared for his needs. They had been with him for a long time. And they would have heard Jesus say that he was going to be killed and three days later he would rise again. He'd rise again on the third day. Mark records four times where Jesus has said that but that means he's probably been saying it again and again. Everything else Jesus has said would happen has come true. He said he would be condemned to die by the religious leaders. He said that he was going to be betrayed. He said that he was going to be handed over the Gentiles. He said he was going to die and then he said he was gonna be raised on the third day. Why didn't his disciples think, hey, Jesus said this was going to happen. He said this was going to happen. He said this was going to happen. It's the third day. Didn't he say something about rising again? We should go and check. But they didn't think that. The women didn't think that. They were expecting to find a dead body because that doesn't happen. I've heard many people talk about how the truthfulness of the resurrection is suspect because people in ancient days believed in silly stuff like the resurrection or miracles. But right here in this text, we see that ancient people were just as skeptical about a resurrection as we are. Nobody expected to see a dead body come to life. Even though Jesus said it would happen and everything else he said was going to happen, happened, nobody thought, hey, let's go check. It's the third day and see if he's raised again. They weren't expecting that. They did not expect someone to rise from the dead because that just doesn't happen. So they find this stone, this large stone miraculously moved away. They walk in 
And instead of seeing a dead body, they see an angel. And, and the reaction is of someone not expecting all this. It, they're, they're, they're expecting to find death, so they are alarmed. And this word for alarmed is, it conveys more than just alarm. It's, it's astonished, afraid, distressed, filled with wonder. All this emotion is going on in these, in these women. And the angel knows all this, and he responds the same way angels in the Bible respond when humans are confronted with an angel. They, they address the fear. Don't be alarmed. And then he addresses why they're there. You're looking for Jesus of Nazarene, or Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. The angel confirms that, they've had, that they're in the right place, that Jesus was crucified. He even affirms that he was laid right there. See the place where he was laid? But he's not here. He has risen. And then he tells the women to go and tell the disciples. You go and be the first witnesses. You tell what happened. Jesus had died, he was buried, but now he's alive. Now I started by saying that this account gives us confidence because Mark gives us details about the resurrection that confirm its accuracy, its truthfulness, and its, its dependability. These are some of the details. Another one is, if Mark was making this up, he would not have chosen women to be the first eyewitnesses. He would have never have made up something and put it off as truth and made women be the first eyewitnesses because, unfortunately, in ancient Jewish culture, women weren't considered to be credible witnesses. In Jewish courts, the testimony of women were not even accepted. So the fact that Mark tells it the way it was, that women were the first eyewitnesses, it, it, it pre this is a truthful account. It points to the truthfulness that he, that he said that the women were the first eyewitnesses. And I think it also points to the beauty of the kingdom of God. There's no hierarchy amongst humans in the kingdom of God. Jesus is the king. And every person who chooses to believe and put their hope and trust in him is a child of God the Father with immeasurable dignity and worth. Whether male or female, rich or poor, slave or free, young or old, or any other distinction that the kingdoms of the world present between humans. So this account, it gives us confidence in the truthfulness of the resurrection. Another way that it does is it names these women at three specific places in the story. At the death, these women, these named women have seen it. At the burial, these named women have seen it. At the resurrection, these named women have seen it. They're named at all these three points. And, and one of the ways that ancient writings were affirmed is that it, they would name somebody who's alive. So Mark wrote this while these women were still alive. And so the idea is, if you don't believe me, go talk to these women. They saw it. It also gives us confidence because three other witnesses affirmed the death of Jesus. The centurion, he saw him die in chapter 15, verse 39. He confirmed his death in 1545 when Pilate heard about 
the death of Jesus. And he was like, God, oh, really? No, it, that soon? Because usually they took a long time. He's already dead? Told the centurion, is, is he dead? And the centurion affirmed it. So Pilate, the centurion, and Joseph of Arimathea are three people who affirms the death. Joseph of Arimathea is the one that took down the body. So Mark's account of the resurrection, it gives us confidence in the truth and accuracy and dependability of Jesus. This text also gives us restoration. In verse 7, the angel tells the women to go and tell the disciples and Peter, Jesus is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Earlier in Mark chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus had just finished eating the Last Supper with the disciples. And they were walking out to the Mount of Olives where Jesus was going to pray in agony as he anticipated what was about to happen. And on the way, he told the disciples, you're all going to fall away. And he told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. In the midst of all this, he says, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Jesus promised that he would gather his disciples back again. Even though they didn't understand, even though they were all going to fall away, even though they didn't think to go and check Jesus' words, it's the third day, he said he would be risen. The angel tells the women to go and tell them, Jesus is going to meet you together. We're going to gather in Galilee. And the angel doesn't just tell the women to tell the disciples. He tells them to tell the disciples and Peter. He specifically names Peter. Peter had failed miserably. The other disciples, they, they failed bad enough. They walked away. They left Jesus alone. But Peter had denied that he even knew Jesus on three separate times. And he felt awful. And you might expect the angels to say, go and tell those backstabbing, lying, good-for-nothing disciples and Peter. And, I mean, that's what you kind of expect somebody to say. But that's not the way of Jesus. That's not the way of the king of the kingdom of God. Jesus knows Peter feels terrible. And so he tells his angel to tell the women to go tell the disciples and to tell the, the disciples, but also specifically name Peter because he knows that Peter would probably think when the women tell the disciples, hey, you disciples, he's going to meet you. And Peter would be thinking, I'm not worthy to be a disciple. I gave up that. There's no way I can go and, and, and act as if I'm a disciple. And so he tells the women, say specifically to Peter. It's so beautiful. Jesus died for all our sin and our shame and our brokenness. And he meets us where we are at in our struggle. He doesn't say that we need to make things all right. He knows we can't. He knows where we're at. He's the one that made the all things right. He just tells us to come to him. He tells us to accept his forgiveness. To put our hope and our faith in him. To accept his love. And he makes the changes in us. So he tells Peter and the disciples to meet him in Galilee. Jesus offers restoration. The community he started, the community that fell apart, the community that fell away when they were scared, when they didn't know what was happening, the community that included a traitor like Peter, this is the community he died for. 
the community he calls back to himself, the community he wants to restore, and he wants us to be a part of that. He wants to restore us, just like he restored Peter. Jesus is the king of a kingdom of restoration. He restores those who are afraid, those who have failed. He restores those who have denied him. We can be confident in Jesus the king who offers restoration. The last thing Mark leaves us with is a call to courage. It takes courage to get in line with reality. We're used to an alternate reality. We're used to the ways of the kingdom of the world where power is exerted through force, where we demand our rights, where we only serve if it benefits us, where we look out for number one and number one is of prime importance. It takes courage to stop trusting the way we've grown up, the way we've been in, trained to think, where I know what's best for me, where I determine the way life goes, where I discover who I am and what I'm about. It takes courage to say, no, no, I'm going to put my trust in Jesus and trust that he knows what's best for me. He determines the way life goes. He tells me who I am and what I'm about. And that's what the angel challenges the women to do. He says, go and tell the disciples the truth about Jesus and what you've seen and heard. And again, the way Mark's, Mark writes this is fascinating because it's another sandwich style of writing. We've run into this several times in the, in the book of Mark, how he writes, he writes beginning one story, interrupting it to tell another story in the middle like a sandwich, and then he finishes the first story. In this account, he begins in 1540 by talking about the women. The women are watching from a distance. Then he interrupts the account to talk about Joseph of Arimathea. And then he comes back to the women in verse 47. So these two stories, the story about the women and the story about Joseph, they interpret each other and they present a challenge by the contrast. The women watch from a distance. They haven't run away and they're really devoted to Jesus. They demonstrate their love and their care and their concern. They take action. They go to anoint Jesus' body, take care of Jesus' body, but at the end of the story, they leave the tomb trembling and bewildered. They say nothing to anyone because they're afraid, and that's how the book ends. Joseph, on the, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, on the other hand, is a Pharisee who had respect and power. He was a prominent member of the council, which makes us realize that not all the Jewish leaders were opposed to Jesus, but it was very risky for him to go to Pilate for two reasons. One is he'd be risking his reputation and his power as a religious leader. His colleagues were the ones who condemned Jesus to death. So if they found out that he's showing dedication to the one they put to death, what would that say about him? What, would his reputation be destroyed? Would his position be lost? Secondly, he was going to go ask Pilate. He had to go to Pilate, the Roman governor, the one who had Jesus crucified. When someone was crucified, they're an enemy of Rome. Was, was Joseph in on the plot? What would happen to Joseph if he went to Pilate? It took risk. And you can see 
that the way Mark writes this as a sandwich style of, of these two stories, contrasting, comparing and contrasting with each other, uh, demonstrate a challenge. Both the women and Joseph care about Jesus. Both show devotion and care and concern and love for Jesus. But there's a contrast that presents a challenge to us. Are we going to be like the women who fled from the tomb and do nothing because they're afraid? Or are we going to be like Joseph who went boldly to Pilate, risking everything? Following Jesus is risky. Following Jesus takes courage. And I'm not talking about the kind of courage that boldly tells people they're condemned. That's not what this means. I'm talking about the courage to die to ourselves, the courage to risk our own reputation, the courage to live like people of the kingdom of God who don't demand our rights but give them up in service to Jesus and concern for others to go out of our way to serve even if nobody notices. And these acts of service don't have to be huge and marvelous. They, they could be small things like picking up garbage as you're out on a walk or buying some of his sandwich. The death and resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It challenges us to be courageous, but with a courage that is so much different than the kind of courage we expect. It's the courage to give up control. It's the courage to give up our reputation, to give up our rights. It's a courage that's based on the confidence of the power that raised Jesus from the dead. The confidence we can have in the truth and accuracy and dependability of Jesus. And it's a confidence that we have full restoration in him. A restoration that no matter what we've done, we can come back. And he'll give us confidence and he'll give us courage again. Mark leaves us with both comfort and challenge. The comfort of confidence and restoration and the challenge to enter the kingdom of God living with courage. So how are you going to be, respond to Jesus and the reality of the kingdom of God? Let's pray. Father, help us get in line with reality. The ways of the kingdoms of the world, it's, it's false. They're lies. We think we can do everything ourselves. We think we are supposed to demand our rights. We think our reputation is of utmost importance. Father, your reputation is what matters and, and us risking for your sake is what is important. Father, help us to understand what that means. Lord, you meet us each in our own, wherever we need to be met, just as you met Peter, where he was. Help us to be aware this morning of where you're, where you're prompting us where you're comforting us or challenging us. Lord, you know what we need in this moment. Help us to be aware and to respond appropriately. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.